Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am speaking with Ibola, Isabella Taborowski. Um, Isabella is a senior advisor at the Cannon Institute at the Wilson Center, and she's also a fellow at the Center for Contemporary Antisemitism, and she's written in Tablet and Newsweek. Hi, Isabella, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I reached out to you, and we'd spoken earlier before, and we were kind of speaking about similarities between what you saw in Soviet Russia and what you're seeing on the campuses. I brought you back on. If, I'll ask you to come back on if you wanted to speak about, we can talk about Israel and Palestine in general, like the, you know, ever since like the war that started on October 7th, but also if we could focus a little bit on the reaction in the West, especially like on campuses and stuff and among the younger generation. Yeah. I mean, the reaction has been insane. Uh, honestly, you know, I think I've uh, I've written quite a bit about Soviet anti-Zionism, Soviet anti-Zionist propaganda, and the reason I was writing about it was not out of some kind of, you know, purely historical interest, <clears throat> even though it's interesting to me. Excuse me, and also I am from there, and so as I was doing research on this, I felt a little bit like I was working through my own, like processing my own experiences in the Soviet Union. But the reason I was really writing about it is because I was seeing already a few years ago the danger of the discourse that was taking hold in the United States on campuses and elsewhere, this uh, demonization of Israel, demonization of Zionism, complete departure from the real meaning of Zionism and really kind of the entry into a conspiracy theory territory. And what I used to write about was how under the Soviet Union, in the in the Soviet Union, when I was growing up, when this when this rhetoric took hold, uh, you started to have an effect on Jews, a very real effect. There were Soviet Jews had their educational and professional opportunities reduced. They were all under suspicion. Like we, it was very hard for Soviet Jews to travel abroad. I mean, it was hard for everyone, but at least if you're not, if you were not Jewish, it was easier for you to secure permission to travel. If you were Jewish, it was much harder because you were viewed as unre unreliable, untrustworthy, potentially an asset for the Mossad. You know, so there were all these things there. And uh, and then October 7th, and, and you already could see it happening in the U.S. It was already happening uh, where, you know, Jewish professors, for example, who were Zionists or Jewish students who were Zionists would face uh, really aggressive attitudes or even have professional consequences at work. And in the publishing industry, you could see it. It was hard to publish, increasingly hard to publish books that took a pro-Israel position, for example, or questioned some of the anti-Zionist dogmas. And then October 7th happened. And my gosh, you know, I realized that I, I mean, I was just flabbergasted uh, by everything that happened. And I certainly did not see um, the support for Hamas uh coming it's just it just it was not in my book i did not foresee it and i'm still processing it i think like a lot of other people and and in fact as we speak i'm kind of writing an essay like a million other people trying to to help analyze and explain it uh but yeah it's utterly shocking uh, like on my end i started noticing it Okay, I mean, anti-Semitism has been around for a long while, so I'm not going to say I just started noticing anti-Semitism in 2018. Like that's, but I started noticing it from 
the quote unquote progressive left, the ones who said they wanted to be anti-racist. And that was when I was starting really looking, reading into intersectionality and critical race theory and trying to figure out what this stuff was. I noticed on Twitter, you would see, oh, Anne Frank was just a white woman and she's using a white women's tears. Right. You'd see that kind of right. stuff. So this, this Jews have white privilege. Jews are white. So I noticed it from that angle. Um, I saw that coming mm -hmm. in. And since 2014, since I got back from overseas, I was dealing with the far left, you know, Islamophilia. Like they, you know, you criticize, I criticize the hijab. I'm a white supremacist, you know, that kind of stuff. And then you look at the lefts or the, the hard left's love of Islam, or at least allying with Islam. And then them classifying Jews as white. Now, I told a couple of people I knew, uh, you know, one's a professor at Rutgers, a uh, couple others, they, you know, have sub stacks and things. And I just, I told them, I think I told them this in like 2019, maybe 2020. I said, give it a couple of years and you're going to see Jews of color. You're going to see that the only people who can face anti-Semitism are quote unquote Jews of color. And I, I and I mean, we're, we're pretty much at that. Like, and so you're spot on. Spot on. When I saw this happen, I wasn't surprised by the support of, of the Palestinians because, again, you look at the theories that they're following, like the intersectionality theories. So who's more oppressed? So Palestinian, they see Islam as a brown religion. They see Judaism as a white religion. So browns are oppressed, whites are oppressors. But then you also look at it through the lens of post-colonialism. And so you know, Jews are the colonizers. And so I, I, I look and so I saw it from that way. So I wasn't surprised with the support for the pal for the Palestinians. I was surprised a little bit at how far they were supporting Hamas. Right. Even you know, there was no real support of ISIS. They might have said ISIS has nothing to do with Islam or whatever and defend Islam that way, but they never said well, what ISIS is doing is good. Right. Here they're defending what Hamas is saying. So that surprised me a little bit but the support for the palestinians didn't the open anti-semitism doesn't um i mean yeah like okay look at my country so we've got a woke prime minister as woke as you can get we've got policies based on kendi anti-racism um our foreign service is taught that things like professionalism punctuality you know like that that whole list that's all white supremacy culture our Ministry of Immigration defines white privilege as if you have ideas that uphold white supremacy, you have white privilege regardless of your skill, skin color or race. So that's in our government. We hired a guy. So our, our, he's still on contract as far as I know with the Canadian government. Um, but we hired him to teach anti-racism to our national broadcaster, the CBC. From the day he became a Canadian citizen, he's called Canada a colonizing state and you know settler colonialism, all this stuff. He's living in Lebanon. He was going to teach them remotely because it was during COVID. And this guy, there, there were tweets that everyone, like you know, people who knew about it, looked at it. He was under investigation by our CSIS, which is kind of like our FBI. He was like, you know, death to the white supremacist Jews. Uh, I mean, all kinds of stuff like that. But because he was teaching anti-racism, he was hired. Like so, I I saw like the reaction to the Palestinians didn't surprise me. The anti-Semitism didn't really surprise me, because it was based on 
hate of whiteness and Jews now have whiteness. So it was okay. But yeah, the, 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 the support of Hamas, like the, as far as they went, that was a bit of an eye opener for me. Yeah. I mean, you're very mild about it. I mean, the, the, you know, a bit of a surprise. The thing is, uh, I mean, the support for Palestinians also did not surprise me. You know, that's been kind of the big rallying cry for the left for, for a very long time. And again, because I come from the perspective of, uh, you know, I, I understand uh, the Soviet perspective really well. And I, I've I'm intimately familiar with the text that they put out, you know, including for the global left and for the developing world in multiple languages, you know, from 1967 onward until the country fell apart, they were, they flooded their kind of, uh, their their, um, sympathizers in the West with ideas about Israel and Zionism that are exactly what the left is saying today. And I think that while I don't necessarily think that, you know, that there's, there are those who view and believe, uh, based on some sources, that the Soviets actually invented the Palestinian identity and all that. I don't buy into it. You know, I think that the sources people use are pretty flimsy for that. Uh, but I think, and and I don't even necessarily look. The Soviets didn't invent everything, but what they were really good at was kind of. Um, putting it all together as a piece of mosaic, you know, and creating kind of a unified theory of Zionism and Israel as the most evil and and dangerous state, and then kind of multiplying it uh, or, or using like multiplier effects and pushing it out to everybody else, it, replaying it to everybody else. So they would borrow ideas from the Western left. They would borrow ideas from uh, the Arab intellectuals and Arab propaganda, and then they would just tie it all together, you know, together with their own ideas. And I think what the Soviets did was turn the Palestinian cause into the rallying cry for the left. And since then, you know, the USSR is gone, but that language is left and the Palestinian cause is left. And I think that today, the Palestinian cause is pretty much the only cause that the left has. I mean, the left has really no other causes. I think everything else is so... I don't know, like all of all of this language of, of decolonialism, that's also, you know, I was growing up in the USSR, it was already old, this language was already old, you know, mm-hmm. the anti-racist language is, okay, that's a slight variation on the left's general anti-racism, but in, in and, and yeah, it's, it, they've taken it to the extreme, but as a cause, I think that the Palestinian cause is the only one, and that's why they hold on to it. Uh, with such sort of so so hard, they can't let it go. I think if you remember in 2015, it was Patrice Colors, Colors, I always mispronounce her name, the, the right, the co-founder of the um, Black Lives Matter. She said that if we basically, if we lose Palestine, we're done for something like that. This is like our main moral cause. So, you know, when you turn something into a cause, you disconnect from the reality of that situation. And the left is really disconnected from the reality of Israel-Palestine completely. Um, so so all of that is just a long kind of, you know, riff on, on, on their support for Palestine. So that didn't su- surprise me. But it's really, I mean, there is, there is actually a difference. You know, we can argue to what extent Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank support Hamas. But there is still a difference between supporting Palestinians versus supporting Hamas and celebrating the 
just unbelievable crimes that they committed. I mean, that to me is really a sign that the left has lost its moral core, truly. Yeah, and it's, I, I like, I don't like the, like these terms left, right? I think, at least mm. in, you know, in a North American sense, they've lost all meaning. They've um, lost so, all but, meaning. You know, but yeah, I mean, like the hard left, the woke left, whatever you want to call them, it's morality based off of they're running a program. Like it's if it goes against their matrix and intersectionality, then you know it's it's not it's oppressor. If it doesn't, then it's oppressed. It's so they're just running off that. So yeah, they don't really have like they do have like that's their guiding principle, but they don't really have a morality. Like they don't see if the outcome is good or bad. Now right. you know. Like, right. you know, we can get into the argument if you want, but like, you know, the whole thing with like Abraham willing to kill his son. So, oh, well, it's good because God saved the kid, but it's like, okay, but he was willing to kill his son. So I'm thinking, you know, like you can have a morality discussion around that. Whereas right. with them, the morality discussion is, are you oppressed or oppressor? And that defines it for them. So, right. And yeah. part of what I'm seeing here is it's like a mixture of France Fanon with, um, Marcuse's idea of repressive tolerance. So Fanon's like, okay, the only way the oppressed can feel good is if they oppress their oppressor for an equal amount of time. And, you know, in the start of what the, the prelude to Wretched of the Earth, Sartre writes about bathing in European blood and stuff. I mean, it's and then you have the repressive tolerance where it's not good enough just to give a voice to the oppressed. You have to suppress the voices of anyone who might harm the oppressed, right? So you mix those two ideas together and that's where you get this love of Hamas. So it's, I don't know. I, I, I've been saying it since I got back. I'm like, you're going to get weird reactions. You're going to get overcorrections. You're all kinds. Of, and we're not going to be able to defend ourselves because we're, we've stripped away our defenses. Like the, look, okay, the ADL. Yes, they came out and they, they, you know, they spoke out against Hamas. They spoke out against all these people in the States who are pro Hamas. But now, like, I'm reading some of their stuff, and they want to use DEI to help combat anti-Semitism. Or they want right. DEI departments to have anti-Semitism listed underneath their thing. Right. Okay. So, no, you haven't learned your lesson. You didn't learn that the stuff that was being pumped out of universities is what caused this anti-Semitism. Now you want to use more of it to create, you know, to fight anti-Semitism. So it's more that they didn't, they lost their moral center. It's more that they just... They decided to use a different set of rules to get their, if you want to call it morality, get their morality from or, or you know, their ethic from. Right. Well, I think, I mean, the ADL, I know that everybody criticizes them, you know, left and right. And I think that they are, you know, they're not as bad as a lot of people portray them because, you know, I know some people who work for it. I, I do think that they have definitely strayed too far to the left at some point. And I think that they now are trying or have been trying for a couple of years to kind of pedal back into the center. I know for a fact that Johnson Greenblatt did realize it at some point, um, but it's hard for them. I mean, what they, what people are kind of losing sight of is that they think that somehow the, the progressive left, the progressive, I think people get confused by terminology. You know, there's so much confusing terminology in this. You know, progressive sounds good, you know, anti-racist sounds good, and nobody really looks into the, you know, equity sounds good, and people don't really look into the real meaning of these words. Meanwhile, this ideology 
is non-liberal. This is what people don't understand. Non-liberal in the sense that not, again, like left or right, you know, for the people who are left of center, liberals should really understand, you know, if you want to stay left of center, you know, this is not, you You are now moving into the totalitarian territory. You're moving into an ideology that is, that wants to control things. It wants to control your thoughts. It wants to control your speech. You know, you're no longer in the liberal territory. And I think that's why a lot of us feel like the ground has shifted under our feet. You know, I used to consider myself a liberal in a way I still do, but not in, according to the definitions of contemporary um, you know, contemporary political landscape, because everything has become so far left. I, I can't call myself that in that regard. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just everybody and everything is really, has become really confused. Um, yeah. Okay, that's one thing about this, the confusion. So there's so much noise, and it's kind of hard to get a good picture. So I wanted to ask you a couple of things, and if you don't know, I mean, I, I understand, but so a lot of the stuff you hear, because I, you know, I read into it or I try to read as much as I can, and from as many different places as I can. But okay, that there, you know, Israel's been doing an ongoing genocide on the Palestinian population. I'm like, well, the Palestinian population is what it's like tripled or something like that in the last twenty years. If you want to take a few of those that you've heard, and then maybe try to give the other side of it, so like, you know, like I said, like the genocide thing or you know, apartheid state, that kind of stuff. And then, like, like I said, give the other side if you can. Well, sure, I can do that. You know, I want to presage it by saying, again, that this language comes from propaganda, which means that, you know, the people who use it don't really want facts. You know, now I understand that we're not, you know, we're speaking to people who want facts. You know, so we're not speaking to the radicals. We're speaking to people who actually are hearing these things and think that there is something real behind them. You know, the fact that there isn't anything real behind it, you, you just said it, you know, the Palestinian population has, you know, grown in multiples since 1948. You know, if you take it from the beginning, from the establishment of the state of Israel, you know, so that's clearly not a genocide. Um, you know, right now, what's happening now, um, you know, what is a genocide? A genocide has an intention. I mean, it's a there's a legal definition to it. And one of the key aspects of uh, whether something is a genocide or not is whether there is an intention. And so there is some argument right now among scholars of genocide uh, as to the intention. I mean, I think it's 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 completely wrong to assign uh, the Israelis and the IDF an intention to commit a genocide in Gaza. You know, what we have now is a war with civilian casualties and the number of civilian, actual civilian casualties, we don't know because the Hamas Ministry of Health reports total number of casualties. So even if we assume that it's right, we still don't know how many of them are members of the Hamas. So we don't know how many of them are actually fighting the, the IDF. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is you just have to look at what at the extent to which the IDF is trying to avoid civilian casualties to understand that there is no intention uh, of the genocide. So, so you know, there is a difference. Hamas, on the other hand, came in with a specific plan to annihilate as many Jews as possible. So the, it was an intention. There was an intention to commit a genocide. And they have said again and again that they will not stop at October 7th, that they will want 
to continue. And every time they have an opportunity, they will come in and repeat what we saw on October 7th. So you can see the difference in the um, in, in the intention there. So that's what with regards to genocide. With regards to apartheid, you know, that's also, it. Th- that accusation also, by the way, comes from Soviet propaganda, just like the accusation of genocide. You know, the accusation of, of apartheid uh, begins in the 1960s when the Soviets start to compare Israel to South Africa uh, and say that Israelis treat Palestinians the way white South Africans treat uh, they treat black South Africans. And they do it because, first of all, they see that Israel is reaching out and building relations with African countries. And it's trying to stop that because the, the USSR sees uh, Africa as its kind of playing ground and it doesn't want anybody else to come in and compete with them. Um, and part of the reason is also to, to smear Israel. After 1967, they really after Israel defeats Soviet allies, Soviet Arab allies, uh, it it makes it a priority to fight Israel and to fight Zionism internationally. It really constructs this conspiracy theory about Zionism, that Zionism is this global force that stands against Soviet interests and socialist interests. interests. And so they just, just paint it in every shade of black that they can find. Um, you know, if you look at the reports that the um, that the Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch put out, they both rely on a changed definition of apartheid. They both rely on circular reporting, meaning that they quote each other. They quote experts that seem to be independent, but in reality are all connected to them. You know, they uh, take all agency away from Palestinians. So it's only Israel that's acting. It's only Israel acting in the region and creating conditions that are unfavorable to Palestinians. And so you read those reports and you imagine that Israel, by the way, Soviet propaganda did exactly that. They would report on events in the Middle East. They would omit Palestinian actions. They would omit reports uh, or instances of Palestinian terrorism and only report the IDF's reactions. And so you think, wow, these Israelis, they they just bomb Palestinians for fun. You know, they wake up in the morning and they're so bloodthirsty, they go and kill Palestinians. You know, so it's the same when you read these reports from uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty. It's as though Israel is just acting, doing all these terrible things just for the sake of it, as opposed to out of security concerns or out of as a response to something that the Palestinians did. So it's it's just a completely unrealistic portrayal of reality. Um, and I think that a lot of it, you know, you, there are all kinds of motivations there, but you can see that the paradigm in all of it is that they have already constructed a view of Israel and everything they do has to fit into this view. Nothing they ever say will challenge this overarching view. And this overarching view is yet again, that Israel is a state that was born illegitimately, that it's a crime unto itself, that it's it doesn't have a right to exist. It's evil, more evil than anything else created under the sun. And so then everything they do needs to be proving that thesis. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things in there. So when you talked about the Soviet allies in Africa and like, you know, the, the MENA region, 
that's one thing I, I always try to point out. It's this is not a one-sided thing where it's the left in the West that is becoming Islamophilic. Um, Islam has had its relations with socialism and communism as well. I mean, Lib during the Cold War, Libya and Syria were definitely allies with the Soviet Union. Um, Iran had some dealings with them, even though they were under like an embargo. But you know, Iran, if it wasn't for communist students, you wouldn't have had the Ayatollah. You know, you wouldn't have had the Ayatollahs win the revolution. They needed the communist students. And as soon as they were done with them, they killed them all. Um, yeah. Same thing with the Ba'athists in Iraq. They needed the communists, right? So there was... Yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, there's... Islam has also had that. Islam has also, whether they're using them as useful idiots or you do have some like legitimate similarities, like okay, comrade and Islam, they call everyone brother or sister, and you know it's it's that sense of community, it's that sense of if you listen to some of the softer stuff about the Ummah and how the community is all supposed to be together and look after one another and all that, right? You know, uh, you have to look after all Muslims and. But, you know, that that's they kind of use that as a rallying cry for the Palestinians every now and then. You know, they use the Palestinians as a rallying cry to get the well, you know, Muslims together. So they there has been that connection. So the red the red green alliance, right? Yeah. That's, that's and, known. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I look at it and I oh, you know, I can understand why someone like Linda Sarsour in the states will be a, a sponsor for Bernie Sanders. You know, like yeah, totally. It's, it's um, it's ridiculous, totally. but well, like, and what, it's what? and it's not just Islam; it's radical Islam. You know, because this is what you saw the Soviets support. You know, they supported. You know what's what's called Islamism, I guess. Um, you know, they supported Palestinian terrorism. They trained Palestinian terrorists. You know, the GDR financed uh, the Palestinian terrorists. So. It's it's to that it's up to that level, you know. Um, so that that's a whole different. That's already a different level, I would say, than just uh, support for Islam. I mean, that by itself could be benign, you know. That, but uh, which and you know, and it's also really interesting because, of course, inside the country, inside the USSR, uh, you couldn't practice Islam. You know, you couldn't basically practice any religion. Uh, but outside the country was a whole different story, which just tells you that it was all political um and again support for the radical islamic causes is really um you know it shows it shows that it was just a, a tool for the soviets during the cold war to use against the west or against you know against whatever that it wanted to to attack in its opponents uh structures i don't know have you ever read nick cohen's book what's left no I'm familiar so, with it, but well, yeah. like I've heard about it. But is it yeah, so he talks about that. He talks about how the Marxists left after the fall of the Soviet Union. They had nowhere else really to go, so they glommed on to anti-imperialism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the U.S. was imperialistic and had, you know, it's 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 spreading an empire through war and you know commerce and capitalism and blah 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 blah. So that so they glommed onto that. So you had the first Gulf War. You know, so they cited they were anti-war because oh, it's imperial uh, you know, imperialistic aspirations. But if you look at the the, the letter that to Osama bin Laden that all these Gen Zs are you know approving, but that was the same kind of talk 
that these that the, the anti-imperialist left after you know like the marxist left that became anti-imperialist so what bin laden was talking about how the u.s has come in they're they've taken over our holy lands you know they've conquered our lands this and that like like it was sort of like it was another crusade so that was another connection point for them at least out here it's like oh yes see this is an empire we're helping fighting empire where you know we're protecting the poor brown people from the white imperialists and it's well, you know, what's interesting is that for me, again, it's there is nothing new in that either. I mean, this is what I, I completely like. I just feel so perplexed by this whole discourse right now, because on the one hand, it's being sold as new. But on the other hand, this was this all existed in the USSR also. So I feel like they're all just using old uh, kind of old uh uh, prefab kind of ideas that were already there. Because, you know, already in the early 70s, the Soviets were saying that Zionism is a weapon of imperialism. You know, everything for them, like, I, I mean, I think in a way, maybe you could say that in their propaganda, they covered the entire gamut of left-wing slogans and left-wing causes because they were trying to really create a, I guess, a big tent coalition of everybody who could join them, you know, in the Cold War so that they could undermine their opponent from the inside. So, you know, so they would compare um, Israel, what Israel was doing to Palestinians, for example, to the Vietnam War, because the Vietnam War was a really big cause for the Western left. And so it would glom on to, you know, and then anti-racism was a big uh also cause for the uh, Western left. And so then they would talk about Israelis as racist. So I think that they just, like everything that was important for the left, they just tried to pander to each of those causes so that they could amplify them and create connections um, and create allies. And so maybe it could be the case that anything that the left says today, it's going to sound like something that Soviet propaganda already preached because they really just, just, you know, um, used everything that the left ever had. I don't know, but it's really odd to me. I mean, to be honest with you, even this binary of oppressor and oppressed that a lot of people are kind of zeroing in on, I feel like, well, that's just your traditional Marxism. I mean, for 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 the Bolsheviks, everything was also oppressor versus oppressed. It's just that the people who filled in these categories were different. You know, for the Bolsheviks, it was you know, the working, the proletariat versus the capitalist, you know, or bourgeoisie or whatever. Today, they're doing it by skin color. So it's a it's a different division, but it's it's still a very simplistic binary. I think that that's just how the left thinks. Yeah. OK, so, yes, it's nothing new under the sun, but my thinking, <clears throat> this is my read on it, and it was. You know, it was the the thing by Deutschka there, the long march through the institutions. They mm -hmm. started slowly. Yeah. I think the late 80s, early 90s was a real watershed moment because that's when intersectionality came on the scene. And once you put that lens, yeah, you had anti-racism kind of stuff before. You, know, you had critical legal scholarship that was going on in the early 70s. You had all kinds of other stuff that was, you know, post-colonialism was also coming out. Um but that intersectional lens what really was what really did it. And I think by that point, the academy just at least the humanities in the academy started going in that direction. I mean, in the uh Kimberly Crenshaw in her paper mapping the margins, she says it straight out that you know, we need to get away from the liberal ethic and have a po politics of identity. 
And so intersectionality was moving you away from enlightenment values or liberal values. And yeah, it, it no, was focusing true. on something different. So I think that's when that came in. And then slowly it started building. And by the 2000s, the academy was on this course of, you know, treat, teaching everything through the lens of oppressor and oppressed. And mm-hmm. so, yes, it, so that's why, I mean, I don't get into the whole argument of, is it cultural Marxism? Is it you know, race Marxism? Whatever. I, I don't bother with that. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, it's a totalitarian idea. They all yeah. rhyme. They all have similar yeah. methods. Okay. It's just the focus of the hate that's different. So let's just yeah, I, focus on it that way. And then like all that other stuff to me, it, it it's a secondary or you know tertiary argument. And I'd rather mm-hmm. focus on the main, what, what what's really important. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I agree with you. Absolutely. It's the, the general kind of the framework, the looking at the world, um, the fundamental kind of worldview that's uh that's really problematic. Um, you know, yeah, the long march through institutions, that that's uh, yeah, that's that's an innovation, you know, understanding that uh you know that the working class is not interested in the West, is not interested in um, you know, um in uh, or orchestrating another October Revolution and understanding that you have to underst- undermine the institutions and values of the society and and using education to do that. I mean, that's really, I think that we've woken up too late to that. Uh, it's uh, That's a real danger because now you have a couple of generations of people who've been brought up that way and, and they're radical, pretty radical. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to focus too much on that, that, but it's. I saw some stuff. Uh, this was before October seventh, so it was mainly around the trans stuff. And there was these kids who were taking down the trans pride flags, and you know, stepping on them and whatever. And all these kids, the parents are saying, "Okay, well, kids shouldn't have been stepping on the flags, but at least they're not buying into the ideology, right?" Mm-hmm. And they were like, "Oh, the next generation is going to be fine." And at the same time, there were some studies that came out, and so I think it was something like sixty-five percent of kids, like teenagers now, would be okay with cameras in the house monitoring everything. I'm like, so even that's, if they're, no, that's incredible. Yeah, that's so incredible. I'm like, so I'm like, even if they're opposed to the gender ideology, which I think is a little crazy, um, you know, like I think the ideology is a little crazy. Being opposed to it, I think is normal, but they're still not liberal. They're not being taught liberal values. So, you know, I, I, when I started looking into this stuff and when I started looking at what was going on in K through 12 in, you know, parts of North America, it was, I'm like, these are woke madrasas. These are, you know, and it's not every kid that goes to a madrasa is going to join the Taliban or ISIS, but they're going to be the ones who are like the 98% in the UK that think homosexuality should be punishable by, you know, by the law, like they should be imprisoned. You know, so yeah, they're they're not ISIS, but they're very conservative Muslims, and they're you know they want some form of Sharia. So that's I was like, yeah, you've got woke madrasas going on, and right. so even if they're not on board with the racism, anti-racism stuff, or the gender stuff, or whatever, they're picking up the tools of the authoritarianism, and they're they're that's how they think they should push their ideology. And well, that's what worries me the most. That's that I'm I'm very sensitive to that uh, coming from the society I, I come from. And I began to hear these notes 
in in 2020 uh, for the first time. I'm sure they were there before. I just wasn't paying attention. But 2020 is when it became really um, apparent to me. And and that, I mean, that's really dangerous. You know, the question that I have maybe, and I, I wonder what you have, whether you've thought about it, is, you know, how is it that it's become so widely adopted? Because, you know, let's say in the USSR, I understand. It comes from, like, if you're in a society like that, you know, you're in China, you're in, in, in a truly totalitarian state, okay, it comes from the top. You know, the government introduces it into all of the school's curricula. Everybody is studying it together. How is it, because it, it seems it's pretty decentralized in the U.S., so how is it that everybody suddenly, you know, at the same time adopts these ideas? Um. Okay, so it was slowly building. And it, it, it started getting off campus in 2012, 2013. It really started getting off campus around 2015. If you look at um, Zach Goldberg's work, I think it was on his thesis. He looked at like the uses of the terms racism and anti-racism and Islamophobia. And, and he looked at, uh, it was New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, like a bunch of big newspapers in the States and just graphed how the use of those terms were going. So it was fairly flat up until about 2008. Then it started going up um, by Obama's second term. It had doubled by Trump's first term or like Trump's term. It had like tripled and it was just going up exponentially, the use of these terms. So it was already in the air. Then you had social media. And then you had politicians, like it, it was just, you know, it was, it was a loop that was feeding into itself. It was just mm -hmm. a, one big giant feedback loop that, and so everyone was, and so when you're calling attention to it, you're calling attention to it and everyone's looking at it. And a lot of people just went along with it because it was, like you said, anti-racism sounds nice on the, the, the face of it. Black lives matter. Sounds like a decent statement. No one has the time anymore to to look into things. You know, uh, there, there's a ton of problems. Like if you look at parents in North America, if you let your kid walk, you know, down the on your street, go like you know twenty houses and go play in the park, one of your neighbors will call Child Protective Services and you'll have the cops at your door. Um, so you don't have time to look into things. You don't have time yeah. to find out about that. And so part of it is, uh, I think Jonathan Rauch called it the. Uh, humanitarian threat to liberal science so they they plug on you know they they, they tug on your heartstrings they, they, oh well you know, yes. don't, don't you want to fight racism don't you want to fight uh homophobia and blah 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 and everyone's like yeah exactly. i get on board with it and they don't know what's going on yeah uh, and so, exactly mm -hmm. and so no, then george ahead. floyd happened yeah and you had a captive audience because of covid lockdowns yeah. and then it it really took off so the amount of people in okay I'm in my mid fifties, the amount of people, my age group that all of a sudden started talking about candy and stuff like that and started posting articles about how, um, white people who live in trailer parks have it better off than professional black people. Um, you know, and, and all kinds of garbage like that. Uh, and so that, that was it. It was just, it had that moment where it took that spark and it went with it and it was already in the air. There was already, You'd have articles in New York Times pushing this garbage, like 
There was yeah. one where it was uh, four black girls got beat up by two South Asian males. And the piece in the New York Times was how it was all about whiteness. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you remember in 29. Sorry, I'll, I'll just say this and I'll let you go. I'll let you, uh, mm-hmm. let you speak. Um, there was this rap. Okay, so it was 2019, I believe. It was Hanukkah. There was a whole bunch of attacks on synagogues and Jewish people during Hanukkah um, on 2019, like in the States. And the, the worst one was in the small town in upstate New York. I think a bunch of people in the synagogue got killed and then the rabbi in his home got killed. And the article the next day was about how Jews should not succumb to whiteness. It was a black guy who killed them. So if they want to be upset that it was a black guy who killed them, don't talk about succumbing to whiteness. I mean, it's yeah. it's, it's a little ludicrous here. And I'm not, I'm not saying you go out and be racist against black people either, but at least say, okay, this was a black man who did it. So we, we should look at it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's right. Well, right. Like nobody wants to stay kind of connected to reality anymore. You know, this whole issue of Jews and whiteness, you know, if you look at the Israeli society, I mean, in general, this idea sounds really ridiculous because, of course, you know, if you come from a European society, you know, if you come from the like if you look at the history of German Jews, you know, the Holocaust, Jews were six million Jews were killed because they were not white enough. You know, they were not Aryan enough. And now all of a sudden, you know, Jews are white. You know, it's just it's the most ridiculous thing. But if you look at the Israeli society, which is another thing, you asked me to debunk a few ideas with regards to Israel. This is another one that really deserves debunking. You know, you hear the woke talk about Israel as a white supremacist state and Jews as white and Zionist supremacists. Well, Israeli society is majority Jews who came from Arab countries. They're exactly the same color as Palestinians. You know, a lot of them actually speak Arabic. And then 25% of the Israeli society is Arabs. And so it's an extremely diverse society. And then there are Ethiopian Jews, you know, so it's, it's extremely diverse, and Ashkenazi Jews are actually in the minority now, and yet there is this myth that Israel is a white supremacist society. And as you say, nobody has time to look into it, but people rely on certain organizations that they have invested their trust in. You know, So if the New York Times writes something, then it's true. If the uh, Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International publish something, then it's true. You know, I just heard uh, a couple of interviews with Norman Finkelstein, which, you know, if your audience doesn't know who this is, I don't want to get into it. (laughs) However, (laughs) what's really interesting, I mean, he's just a really, he's just a a real far left crank, you know, who calls Gaza a concentration camp and relies on the on reports from the Human Rights Watch and Amnesty quotes them as widely respected, honest uh, organizations that produce honest reporting. Well, you know, we just we're actually the Human Rights Watch right now is in the midst of a scandal. You know, two things have happened. So one is that a senior person there has just left. I think she's like an editor in chief of its publications or something like that. She sent a company wide email before her departure in which she talked about how the Human Rights Watch just completely is destroyed professionally. Uh, got destroyed by its obsessive hatred of Israel. She talked about how there are no more standards, how everything is geared towards like expressing this hatred against Israel. And then number two is that a, a, a letter has just surfaced from, I can't remember the year, but maybe 10 years ago or so, uh, or maybe less, 
about the Human Rights Watch getting funding from Qatar, secret funding from Qatar, millions of dollars. You know, Qatar, of course, is a country that uh, that uh, is home to Al Jazeera and that's home to the senior Hamas leadership. The Human Rights Watch at some point went dark in terms of its donors. And that's never a good sign. So, you know, so who was funding these widely respected uh, organizations? I mean, I just think that the Human Rights Watch used to be a widely respected organization when its founder uh, ran it. And then he left and Ken Ross came in, uh, who is obsessively anti-Israel. And so, you know, but but this is that's the thing. It's like these organizations run on the coattails of their past glory. And people haven't yet caught up because people don't have time to check anything, going back to what you said. you know. And I think that this is, if anything, I think we all need to learn that we're now living in the world where everything changes. You know, The left and right categories, I completely agree with you, don't mean much. Old glory doesn't mean much. You have to really look into absolutely everything. You can't trust anything. You have to read every article. You have to read, you have to research everything before you can form your own opinion. Otherwise, you become part of a crowd or a mob that's being led by somebody else and being used and weaponized for somebody else's agenda. Yeah. Um, just a couple more things and I'll let you go because I don't want to keep you too, too long because I realize it's a lot later for you than it is for me. Um, mm-hmm. The first is like something you were talking about there. So I keep going back to Hitchens used to always talk about the play A Man for All Seasons. I don't know if you've seen the the movie with Charlton Heston, Mm-mm. but there's a part in it where the, the church's inquisitor or lawyer or whatever is talking to Thomas More and Thomas More says, well, you know, you'd cut down the laws of England to catch the devil. And the guy Roper turns around and said, yep, I'll cut down every law in England if I have to, to catch the devil. And Thomas More you know, replies back, well, what then? What will you do when the devil turns around and you've stripped all the laws bare? So that's one of the things that concerned me when I got back from overseas in 2014, and I'm still harping on it now, is we don't have defenses left. Like, right. you know, so I'm in Canada. I uh, can talk about what's going on here, but if you look in the states, like the ACLU is a shadow of what it used to be. How are they yeah. supposed to defend civil liberties? Yeah, you know? They can't. Yeah. They can't. So mm-hmm. I'm afraid about the extremism, and I'm afraid about what's going to happen with overcorrections. We've got nothing left to defend ourselves. So I'd like to ask you about that. Second thing I'd like to ask you about is where does Israel go after this? Like it's losing support in the West with governments. There's a lot more pressure for ceasefires in israel to stop i personally say until you wipe out hamas don't stop that's my that's my take on this like you know I, yeah you can't let them they, they told you straight out that they're they're not going to stop so i don't see how israel can stop um mm-hmm. but so yeah if you want to just talk about like that like you know we've lost our protections in the west or we've given them away and a strong man can take take control now and then i like well, they think mm-hmm. about israel well, I mean, first of all, I completely share your concern. I think that we've gone so far to the left that, and that's already dangerous, but the overcorrection may very well be to the far right. And I think that it's already happening in, in some places. It's happening in Europe. And, you know, if it's just kind of average right, it's okay. But if it's really far right, then we may be in trouble. 
Um, I think that we, yeah, I think I completely share your concern on this. Um, and actually some, it's interesting that some uh, socialists, kind of old fashioned socialists have warned the left, specifically with regards to the language that uses about Israel and Zionism, which is very conspiracist, very like, just obsessive hatred kind of language. You know, and they've said that if the left keeps traveling down this path, then it will lose its ability to fight the anti-Semitism on the extremist far right when the time comes to fight that. And they're completely right. It's already right now in the moment in which we're recording this, it's impossible to tell the language of the far left from, from the language, the extreme left, from the language from in, on the extreme right. And the extreme right is completely jumping on the bandwagon of this uh, far left Islamist um kind of uh, carnival that we're watching right now and the anti-Jewish, anti-Zionist, anti-Israel hate. So I think it's it's a very, very, very big problem. Um, as for Israel, I mean, look, uh, I'm in Israel right now and I was here on October 7th. And I can tell you that, yes, the pressure from outside is strong and we'll see how, we'll see how the, you know, the political leadership, how Netanyahu and the rest of them uh, respond. But as far as, um, you know, from the kind of the sense of, of the people is that we have to destroy Hamas because otherwise there will never be enough of a sense of security inside the country for the country to continue um, to continue living, <laughs> you know, the way it did. I think that like it, it's just uh, the, the attack was so brutal. Uh, that you know, and the the expression of the will to continue doing it is so clear, you know. And it's not that it's not the first time that Israelis see this kind of uh, brutality from Palestinian terrorist organizations. It's just that this time it was so big, and it was so uh, it, it was just it was just massive, right? That Israelis just will not be able to continue uh, unless they are uh unless they can see that Hamas is no longer presenting a threat to them you know it's hard to say what will happen because as you say there is so much international pressure um but i just don't see right like if israel stopped right now if it stopped fighting hamas i mean i don't know i think that there will be um i, I think that the society will i think there'll be riots I think there'll be, I think that the army will fall apart. I actually think I've seen some Israeli analysts say that, you know, that if we stop fighting now, then the, like people will just quit the army. They will, in disgust, basically, in, in the in the sense that the, that the army, not only did the army fail to protect the civilians on October 7th, but it's also now failing in its mission of further kind of protecting the society. So, uh yeah, I mean, a lot of unknowns here, obviously, but I think the very strong sense of the Israelis is that the army needs to finish the job. Uh, yeah, like I said, that that's where my stance is too. Is you can't leave Hamas lying around, um, but then okay, I'll just leave it with this: like you can't leave Hamas lying around. You have to get rid of Hamas, but then the real work starts. Like. Well, that's. I mean, that. You mean what's what's going to happen in Gaza after? Well, okay. After it's okay. Gone? I mean, I, I was looking at just the immediate of like getting rid of Hamas, but I, I'm just saying, if you want to plan for that, like the real work does start 
after you get rid of Hamas because going back to madrasas, you've got a you know ham you know like what eight kids who've been going through schools for eighteen years, you know, and now we're learning also from like the UN they were learning to like hate and despise Jews. It's just right. Well, I mean, look, uh, I don't know if you're familiar. Do you follow Anat Wilf at all? Do you know who she is? Uh, no. I highly, highly recommend uh, her um, to follow her on X. She posts really excellent posts. And her um, her book, The War of Return, which she co-authored with Adi Schwartz, is a big, big, big recommend from me. I must read uh, in terms of understanding uh, what this conflict is about. She she constantly says that we have to give the Palestinians the respect of listening to what they tell us about what they want. And they have said to us over and over again, very, very clearly, that their priority is not to establish their own state. Their priority is to annihilate the Jewish state. This is their cause. This is their main grievance. They really don't, they can't, like if they wanted, if they agreed to having a state next to the Jewish state, they would have had this objective, they would have achieved this objective already decades ago. But, you know, look, Gaza, here's to debunk one more myth, you know, Gaza was not occupied, you know, when October 7th happened, Gaza hadn't been occupied since 2015. You know, Israel had completely left it in 2015. And when it left it, there were very big hopes for Gaza, that Gaza would become kind of this jewel on the Mediterranean. Lots of money, lots of people were willing to invest lots of money to build a port there, to make it a big tourist destination. But instead, they elected Hamas and we have what we have. You know, so the support for Hamas is very high. The support for the idea that Israel does not have a right to exist and needs to be wiped out is very high. And so, as you say, you know, we, the real work will be re-educating the population, somehow de-radicalizing the population. You know, we need, and, and Einat Wilf has talked about, you know, we need to look at the Nazi example, you know, how did, or the German example, how did we de-radicalize the Nazi German population? I mean, this will be critical. Without it, there will never be peace in this region. You know, there should be a Palestinian state, but it needs to be a state that says openly, yes, we are okay with there being a Jewish state, a sovereign Jewish state next to ours. If Palestinians want to return, you know, this is speaking of the right of return, which is really the stumbling block and all of it, then they should be returning into the future Palestinian state, not into the sovereign state of Israel, you know, all these millions of people. So so I, I highly recommend reading her uh, because she brings a lot of clarity into this issue. Great, thanks. I'll check that out. Um, it was really good talking to you, Isabella. Thank you very much for coming on. Same was... here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Always good to talk to you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And I'll be back.